Thanks, Shauna. Hello, everybody. So good to see all you here this morning. Uh, hello to all those who are podcasting or watching through television or some other means. Hello. Uh, good to have you on board as well. Uh, I'm Greg Boyd. I'm one of the te- teaching pastors here at, uh, at Woodland Hills Church. I so appreciate being uh, in the presence of God. I appreciate Jill sharing her heart and uh, how God's kind of used her brokenness in this season of her life to minister to us. When we're weak, he is strong. Amen. And um, uh, then there's just a sweet presence here this morning. And I, I thank God for the ability to get the message out through podcasting. And we've got thousands of people who do that through television and other means. But we can never minimize uh, the importance of coming together to worship. Uh, where you've got a group of people, whether it's a larger group like this or whether it's a group of five, but your hearts are singularly focused on him to exalt him and just sing what's true about him and to be in a love relationship with him, there is a power there. God inhabits the praises of his people. There's something about throughout the whole Bible and, and throughout the church tradition, there's something about corporate worship that invites the presence of God in. And, and there are things that can happen when God is present uh, in the worship and the praise of his people that don't happen in any other context. And so I encourage everybody to make it a high priority, as it says in Hebrews, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, to get together with others and uh, to have a time of, of singing and worship. I, grow, I am concerned because that is being minimized in, in an increasing number of circles, um, uh, the, the importance of that. And it's, it's vitally important. It's vitally important. And the sense of the presence of God here this morning Tells you why. So we're in a series here in, in, in Colossians, uh, and we're doing a little mini series as we're going through Colossians, uh, using verses nine through twelve of chapter one as a springboard to talk about discerning the will of God. How do we, how do you discern the will of God? And there was a sermon that I was going to give on those three verses uh, that on how to discern the will of God. That just kind of brought together several principles. Um, then I decided uh, that I needed to first lay a foundation, as we did the first week of these verses. And then came another, uh, the next week, I had another little piece of the foundation to lay on, on, on the retainer God and making God central to our life and, and all of that. Because it's not enough to seek the will of God. The question is, what's your starting point? Uh, where you stand when you ask the question makes all the difference in the world. Uh, are, are you asking God's Seeking God's will is sort of a retainer on your life or a consultant in your life? And, and are you doing it for uh, your own self-motivating purposes? Or, or how do we frame the question, how do you discern the will of God? And so I felt like we needed to lay some foundational things. This morning is going to be maybe the last foundational piece before I preach that sermon I've been looking to preach uh, that I was going to start a couple weeks ago. Uh, this, I, I want to entitle this message, communion Communion-ication. Communion-ication. Because as we're going to see here in a little bit, this is all about communing with God and our communication with God. And the point is that the kind of communication we're to have with God, he's speaking to us, us speaking to him, comes out of and only comes out of our communing with him. There's a kind of communication that is uh, unique to relationships where you're communing with another. And that's that's... The kind of relationship we're to have with God. I'll just read one of the three verses that we're hovering over in this sort of season of our study of Colossians. Colossians 1.9, which is a springboard verse, where Paul says, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will. Fill you with the knowledge of his will. That's what we're talking about these last couple of days last couple of weekends, uh, through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. Paul is urgently praying here for these Christians whom he's never met, that they would be filled with the knowledge of God through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. This is important stuff, in other words. Another verse I want us to just kind of lock in as we're going through this, this message this morning is Romans 8, verses 14 and 15. Paul says, for those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. One of the things that is to characterize the child of God is that you're led by the Spirit. Look at that. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves 
so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by this spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. That term Abba just means dear father, or some even translated daddy. The spirit of God working in our life does not put us in a, uh, in a position of slavery and where we're fearful, but rather infuses us with the spirit of, of adoption. And we, we are able to say, Daddy, Daddy. But note here that the norm is for the children of God to be led by the Spirit of God. Pray with me here for a moment. Spirit, teach us. Teach us what we need to learn here this morning about you, about God's will, about responding to God's will, about our relationship with God that brings about a knowledge of God's will. Father, just I pray you'd use this message, the anointing that's been here all morning long. Lord, I want to carry that over. I want to pray a double portion on, 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 on every word that comes out of my mouth, Lord, that you would infuse it with your authority, not mine, and, and, and write it into our ears, our, our, our hearts, our minds, and build your kingdom and tear down strongholds and set us free. And God, for every person listening through a podcast, wherever they may be right now, whatever they're doing, whatever position they're in and or watching television, I pray you do the same for them, Lord God. Right now, what, what, whatever environment they're in, make it, make it an environment packed with the Holy Spirit. Even if they're outdoors running or, or, or whatever, make it a, uh, surround them with your Spirit and press in on them. Press in on us this message. Communion, occasion. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. The Spirit is to lead the children of God. Paul assumes that that's a given. That's one of the criteria of being a child of God. The Spirit leads you. The Spirit leads all those who are children of God. And you find throughout the Bible that God in various ways and in sundry times spoke to people. Uh, he has a conversation with his people. He's a talking God. Uh, in the New Testament, the Spirit is continually leading people. Look, read the book of Acts. Spirit sends a group there. It says, don't go over there. Paul, go over here. Don't go into Bithynia. Go into Macedonia. They're directed by the Holy Spirit. Throughout the Bible, God talks to his people. His people talk to him. He talks to the people. There's this conversation that goes on. I believe that God is still a talking God. I don't think he's gone mute. I really don't. I, I think in this matter, he's the same yesterday today and forever. He's a God who still wants to talk to his people. In fact, it's hard for me to imagine what a relationship is like if you're not having a conversation. I talk to my wife every day and she talks with me. That is what it is to have a relationship. God wants a relationship with us where there's a conversation. Uh, Many people see prayer as sort of what Dallas Willard calls just sort of uh, uh, God speeches. We, We speak to God, a prayer speech. Oh, Lord, thou art almighty on high, thither and whither. And, and God bless that. That's, but we talk to God. But see, you know what it's like when you're having a quote-unquote conversation where the person talks to you and you never get to talk back. <laughs> well, how do you think God feels? We're sitting there talking to him, and he wants to get a word in edgewise. Throughout the, the Bible, throughout history, he's been a God who interacts with his people. And he's still that way. You can't have a relationship without conversation. God is still talking. The question is, are we listening? Are we listening? Or maybe we've lost the capacity to hear. Uh, maybe we are, our, our ears have gotten somewhat deaf. Or we, we've just lost, maybe we, we're just not tuned into the frequency. Many people have trouble discerning the, the heart of God, the will of God. There's a lot of reasons for this for sure. Part of it is that we just live, and we in the West, if you're hearing this message from perspective of Western culture. You have 300 years of of a legacy of the scientific revolution that has conditioned us to see the world as a closed system of cause and effect, a a mechanistic system like a watch. And and while we may believe different, what what, what is at the the core of the framework in which we see the world is the assumption that for everything that happens in the world, there's an explanation for it in the world. It's a closed system. There's no place for God really to break in and do miracles. And then our lives, our minds are closed systems. Uh, we're, we're conditioned to think that every thought we think and every feeling we feel, well, there's an explanation inside of us as to why we have that. And to, to the degree that we buy into that, we censor out. We censor out. We just block God getting in, you see? And so we can live our lives sort of as functional atheists, even though we believe in Jesus, believe in God, believe in the Bible and all that stuff. We live as functional atheists because we live as though God didn't talk. 
And if we live as though God didn't talk, it's pretty certain that we're not going to hear him talk. The first step to discerning the voice of God is to believe that he, he, he is, he exists, he's with us moment by moment, and he wants to talk to us. He wants to talk to us. He wants to say, I love you. He wants to console. If we'll let him, he wants to say, hey, you know what? If you would just go that direction instead of that direction, I could use you for this purpose. Oh, if you just listen, tune into the station. He wants us to be a people who hear his voice. Jesus said, my sheep will hear my voice and they will follow him. He's, he, he's still talking. Try to live life with the assumption that God will have something to say to you today and maybe throughout the day. Uh, well, he's always with us. And we're always to be listening. And so start living with a cupped ear. Now we'll talk more about how to discern that will in the, in the, in the, in the weeks to come, at least next week, maybe the weeks after that, who knows? But this morning I want to lay down one more foundational piece. And that is this. When you ask the question, how do you discern the will of God? How do you know what God wants for your life? It makes all the difference in the world whether you frame that in a legal perspective or you frame it in a love perspective. If you've been here for any length of time, you've heard me uh, make this contrast because it's so foundational. This contrast between a legal paradigm, which is like a court of law paradigm, versus this love uh, or covenant or marriage kind of paradigm. How do you understand what it is to ask the will of God or seek for the will of God or what it is to ask any theological question? We in the West have been conditioned, have a long history of this, of framing almost every theological question, every theological issue in a court of law context. By that I mean we see God as the judge and we're the guilty defendants. And we've been condemned, but Jesus is sort of our lawyer who comes in and works out the kind of a bizarre deal with the Father. So then he takes the punishment that we deserve so we don't have to go to eternal jail and we're let off free. And for a lot of people, that's sort of the summation of the gospel. It's all framed in a court of law sort of mindset. And see, if you're seeking for the will of God with a court of law mindset within that legal paradigm, well then... Looking for God's will is you're looking for the will of the judge. What does the judge want from you, convicted criminal? You've been acquitted, or at least you're out on parole. But he's got some things he wants you to know. And so the will of God is, is the will of the court, the mandates of the court. And what, how you, this, this, this criminal who's now been acquitted, how, how you're to behave. It's a will that's imposed on you. It's a will that you obey or you're going to get in trouble. And see, in that court of law mindset, when you're looking for the will of God, there's often, because it has this legal connotation to it, there's often a lot of fear around asking the question, what is God's will? I've talked to a lot of people over the years about matters dealing with God's will. And very frequently, I would even say usually, there's some dimension of fear involving the question. How do you know God's will? There's kind of a fear there. Because if I don't know it, I might miss it. And if I miss it, there might be a lot of trouble for me. What if I've blown God's will? What if I've screwed up God's will? What if I've missed God's perfect plan for my life? What if I can't get my life back on track? Maybe I can't get my life back on track. Maybe I've blown it too many times. You know, I, 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 and and, and I, am I looking hard enough for the will of God? What if I make the wrong decision? What if I buy the wrong house and marry the wrong person? Or, or you know, and, and there's a sense that there's this, these, these terrible consequences that will happen if we don't get the will of God. And so there's this fear that surrounds all these questions. And I'll come back and have more to say about that at the end of this message. But I want us to see how that all is associated with this paradigm of God as judge, us as the guilty defendants, Jesus as our lawyer. Seeking the will of God is very, very different. If you frame it, everything, the understanding of everything from salvation on is very different if you frame it not in a court of law framework, but you frame it and you understand it in a covenantal framework. Or a deep friendship where you're committed to one another. Or a marriage kind of covenant relationship. And while the Bible will sometimes use legal language to describe certain aspects of God's relationship with us, that's, that's true. I submit to you that the main paradigm that the Bible uses is God, for God's interaction with his people is not one that's legal, but it's one that's more covenantal. Because the truth is that God does not want a legal relationship with us. He doesn't want to settle for a legal relationship with us. He wants to be our lover. He wants to be our friend. He wants to be our, our, our heavenly husband. 
The world of difference between the two, and we are no longer defendants in a court of law. No, no. If, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, don't live your life as a defendant in a court of law who's merely been put out on parole. No, you've been invited into the throne of grace. You've been showered with his love and forgiveness. You, you've been forgiven. You've been justified. And therefore, you're his friend and you're his child. And the Bible says that you can per, uh, come forward to the throne of grace with full confidence. There should be no element of fear in this. And God's not primarily our judge. No, he, he's, he's our husband, and he's our friend, and he's our lover, and he's our savior, and he's the rock that we stand on, and he's the refuge, as we sang earlier. No, he's not primarily our judge. He wants a passionate love relationship with us. It makes a world of difference whether you're seeking the will of your lover or the will of this judge where you're always the defendant. The kind of relationship that God wants us is, is gotten at in, in Ephesians chapter 5. Here Paul has been talking about husbands and wives and, and, and what does a kingdom relationship look like between a husband and a wife in, in, in the first century when husbands had all the power. And so you know, he brings the gospel to marriages. But then he says this in verse 31. For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united, united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Quoting Genesis 2 there. Paul says, this is a profound mystery, even when you're talking about a husband and wife. It's a, it's a profound mystery. This one flesh, this, a new reality is created when, when, when the man and woman come together, create this one flesh relationship. He goes, that's a mystery. But I'll up the ante even more. I'm not just talking about that mystery. I'm talking about Christ in the church. God wants something like this one flesh relationship with you, with me, and with his church. He wants a relationship where our lives, there's a new reality created, this usness between God and us. The kind of love and the kind of intimacy and the kind of passion that in God's ideal, uh, the, the man and the woman would have with one another is they create an us uh, out of the me, uh, me, the I and the I. They create an us. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with his people. It's a relationship where, where he's on the inside of us and we're on the inside of him. And his heart becomes our heart. His will becomes our will. And, and uh, his vision becomes our vision. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. While the, while, while the sexual dimension of the marriage relationship is reserved for marriage, this oneness can characterize profound friendships as well, which is why Jesus calls us friends. It's another one of the metaphors they use in the Bible. In John 15, he says, I don't call you servants any longer. No, I call you friends because I've made known to you the will of God. I've, I, you're on the inside here. And then he says this in the same context in John 15. He says, remain in me. Even as I remain in you. This is real friendship here. Remain, the word means to abide, to dwell, to lodge, to take up residence. It's the opposite of, of visiting. You, you visit a stranger now and then, but, but Jesus is saying, don't visit me. Don't hold me on retainer. I don't want to be your consultant. No, I don't want to be someone you, you know, say hi to the last five minutes of every day. No, live in me. Come on. Set the tent here, and I'll set the tent in you. And we'll live inside of each other. It's this mutually interpenetrating, heart-to-heart kind of relationship. That's what God wants with his people, to live in us as we live in him. You see this reflected in John 17. It's so beautiful. In John 17, where Jesus says, Father, I pray that they may be one even as we are one, that they may be one in us even as we are one. What Jesus is praying there, and it's so profound, is he saying, Father, I pray that our, my, our relationship with them would mirror the relationship that we have with each other. God wants a relationship with us that is such that the, 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 it, it reflects, it's a mirror of the perfect loving relationship of the triune God. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are perfectly united. In fact, in the, in the, in the church tradition, we use this word perichoresis, Latin, and it, it kind of means dancing on the inside of one another, penetrating one another. There, there, there's, there's no separation of their wills. There's this, this union, this union of love. And God wants the relationship that he has with us to have that kind of union. And then out of that, the relationship we have with one another to have that kind of union. It's what I sometimes have called the trinification of creation. That's God's goal. That his love would begin to permeate a relationship with us and then our relationship with one another, and that would affect all of creation. That's the kind of love relationship that God wants with us, and it's a trillion, trillion miles beyond what a legal relationship could ever do. When we ask the question, what is the will of God, within the framework of this love relationship, well, the answer is that. That interpenetrating, indwelling, abandoned, surrendered relationship 
that reflects the love of the triune God, that's God's primary will for you. What is the will of God? That you would be that. When you ask the will of God in a court of law context, what you get is something about what you're supposed to do. And so we seek God, what should we do? We're doers in the court of law kind of context. But see, in the love, in the love marriage-like, friendship-like context, we're not doers. No, we're beings. And God's primary will isn't about what we would do. It's about who you are. And what, he, what his will is for who you are is that you would be his. And he would be yours. And you dwell in him. And he would dwell in you. That's God's primary will for our life. And God has, as we'll see sometime in this series, God has particular wills for what we should do. But what we need to understand is God's will for our, the particular things that we do flow out of his will for who we are. He first wants this communion with us, this relationship with us. And as we commune with him, then we begin to know what maybe his will is for particular things that we do. But first comes the communion. God's will is to share himself with you. God's heart is to pour himself out in you. God's will is to pour his joy into you, his power into you, his peace into you, his love into you. God's will is to transform you from the inside out. And God's will is that you would reciprocate. God's will is that he dies for you and that you see his love for you on, on the cross and that you reciprocate. And as he's emptied out towards you and you're emptied out to him, now you have the kind of relationship that begins to mirror the perfect love of the triune God. That's God's will for you. That's that one flesh relationship that God wants for you. Amen. Amen. And so you see how different it is on how you frame the question. In all of theology, how you frame the question determines the kind of answer you get. What's your picture of God? What's the framework in which you're thinking about God? See, if you're framing the question in a court of law, a judge just hands out the, the court decree. Here's my will. Obey. But see, a lover and a friend, they first hand out themselves. They pour themselves out. The judge is just a doer. Do my will. But see, to the friend and to the spouse, to the lover, you're not just a doer. No, you're first and foremost someone who's worth them pouring their lives out for you. You're a person of unsurpassable worth. And all the knowledge of what they want you to do comes out of a context where they love you as you are and are, and are first concerned with the relationship. They want to commune with you, the lover, the friend. The spouse wants to commune with you. Now look at that word, commune. Communion. Uh, it comes from the Latin cum, which is to be with or alongside of, and then, of course, union. So communion, when you commune with another, you have a union alongside of them. It's not a fusion where you no longer have distinct personalities and distinct wills and you lose your personhood. No. The, 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 the individuality is honored, and yet honored in a way where the two are totally united. Communion. Communion. It's the heart of all good marriages, and it's the heart of all good friendships, and it's the heart of our relationship with God. We're united with another. It's what Jesus is getting at when he says, Remain in me even as I remain in you. Communion. Come union. And see, when we're in a communion relationship, Holy Spirit, help us to attend to this now. This is going to be, Lord, help that coin to drop in the slot here. When we're in communion relationships, or relationships that are moving in that direction, then communication takes on a different flavor. The communication between the two parties who are united flows out of the union and reinforces the union. That's why I title this communion occasion. Communion occasion. It's the communication that's unique to communion relationships. The communication, the communion is the central thing. That's the goal, right? But be, precisely because you're becoming one, and your hearts are being shared, when you communicate, it expresses the union that is there and it reinforces the union that is there. Communion, occasion. That's the kind of relationship that God wants with us. That's the kind of communication that God wants with us. When you're discerning the will of a judge, you don't need to know the judge at all. It's, it can be impersonal. What does the judge want? And so often we frame questions like this. What does the judge want? Uh, how can I... See, if you're in a, working in a, in a court of law context, we ask all these wrong questions. What does the judge say about when sin becomes a sin? When exactly do you cross the line and it's officially fornication? When can it be held against me? Would I lose my acquittal if I do this sin? What, if I do, what about if I do that sin? How much can I get away with before he reverses my acquittal? Those are all defendant questions. Those are all court of law questions. 
A husband or a wife would never ask those questions. I hope, at least I hope you wouldn't. Honey, how much can I get away with before you're going to divorce me? No! You've got a sucky marriage if you're even asking that question. When you frame things wrong, you ask all the wrong sorts of questions. So here, to know the judge, you don't have to know... I mean, to know the will of the judge, you just need to read the court memo. Uh, you don't need to know the judge at all. But see, if you want to know the deep will of another person, then you've got to know the person. And if you want to know the person, you're going to know the deep will of the person. You see, that's what I mean by communion. It's a a different kind of thing. That's why the more you're on the inside of a person's life, and they're on the inside of you, the more easy it is to discern what their deep will is. You get to know them. You get to be able to read them. That's why in real deep friendships and in, in, in healthy marriages that have gone on for a while, you can get to the point where you can communicate without words sometimes, uh, where you know the will, the deep will of a person without them having to say anything. Because in communing relationships, there's a voice that's deeper than the human voice. You sense things. You can read things. You, you, pick, up, you, you pick up nuances. So my wife and I have been married 32 years, and we've shared life together, and we've gone through struggles together, and we've raised kids together, and, and, and we, we've, we've, gotten, we've taken time to get on the inside of, of each other's life. And there are times where, where I can just sense. She doesn't have to say anything. I sense her deep will. I sense that she's, she would love to have me join her on a project. She's feeling lonely. Or I sense that she really needs a word of consolation. Or I sense that she just wants me to give her some space. <laughs> she doesn't need to say a thing. Uh, I, I sense it. Uh, now, you know, honestly, we're in a fallen world, and so well, we've all got fallen marriages, so do I sense it all the time? No. A lot of times I don't have a clue. But see, to the extent that, 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 that we're moving in that communing kind of relationship, there's an awareness, a communication that comes out of our communion. Communion, communion, occasion. This is the kind of relationship that God wants with us. This is the kind of communication that God wants with us. And it's why God's communication with us is usually not obvious. It's lover talk. It's, it's communion talk. He doesn't want to secularize it in ways that anybody could get, who, even if they didn't want to get it. Now, once in a while, I mean, God stoops to that level. Thunder in the sky or, you know, cloud or fire in the sky or something. You know, we all, people want this big, why doesn't God just do this? You know, cause trees to levitate or something. Um, well, even when he does that, the people who don't want to get it don't get it. You know, the Pharisees said, oh, must have thundered out when the Lord said, this is my beloved son. You know, there's always a plausible exit strategy. But see, the other thing is that I don't want the world to be able to read my wife the way I can read her. No, what makes the relationship loving and tender and communing is that there's a particular investment there that isn't common, that isn't shared by others. And God wants a lover relationship with us and therefore a lover style of communication with us. Our ability to hear him is conditioned on our communing with him. And it takes time and it takes character. This is why learning how to do the will of God often takes, in fact, almost always takes time. I, I didn't know how to read my wife when we were first married, uh, and I was still in process on it. it. It comes from communing together. Our trouble is that we often want everything to be quick and formulaic and give me the three tricks and the nine gimmicks that will help me discern the will of God. If I just fast three days and drink this kind of juice and stand on my head and point to this Bible verse, well, then I'll know the will of God. And there's books out there that will tell you that kind of thing. You know, the magical tricks. What's the secret of knowing God's will? As though, you know, as though it was some kind of a gimmick thing. See, that is paganism. You go back as far as you want in pagan religion, and you'll find people who were divining the will of the gods through various techniques, through various strategies, by using magic. Read Cicero's On the Gods. It's hilarious. He pokes fun at all these people, the way they try to divine what the gods are willing. And they do it by examining the entrails of slaughtered animals or by looking at what birds are flying where. Or They have a hundred different ways of trying to divine the will of God. And Christians often do the same thing. What does that mean? What's that sign? What's God trying to say to me? Because we all know that he's got a speech impairment. So what's he trying to say to me? We may have a hearing impairment. He does not have a speech impairment. Let me tell you that. See, but look at, look at, magic. Magic is trying to discern the will of God or the gods 
or trying to access the power of God or the gods without a relationship. Just give me the magic. And then we want to use it to our own advantage. I want to know the will of God. Why? Because I want to get the best deal in the house. That's magic. That's paganism. God doesn't want that. What God wants is you. What God wants is you. You want to know his will? Here's his first will. I want you. I want you. And I, 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 I want to be in you. I want you to be in me. And I want our lives to be intertwined. I want a one flesh relationship with you. And, and I want to be transforming you into the image of Jesus Christ. I want to be saving you. Which is not just about getting out of hell. No, it's, it's about participating in the life of God. I want to, he's saying, I want to share my life and my joy and my peace with you. That's my will. Now, when that happens, out of that will come an ability to know my heart and to know my will. And, and you become sensitive to discern my will. But I'm not going to give it to everybody by giving little signs and wonders and stuff. Once in a while, I'll go ahead and placate that. But no, I, I, I want this to be about me and you. I, don't wanna, I want you to be able to hear me and know me and read me. And so he speaks with a still, small voice as we'll be talking about in, in, the, in the weeks to come. Communication. See, if we embrace this communication model, this is the last thing we're going to say, and then we're going to open up for a few questions. So be thinking about what questions you might have. If you embrace this model of of uh, discerning the will of God. This, this love, covenant, marriage-like model. What it does, it confronts a number of things, but one of the things it has to do is confront this fear-driven discernment where we're trying to discern out of fear. I, I need to know the will of God because what if I get off track? What if I blow it? What if I screw it up? Uh, often it's, it's combined with this idea that God's got an, a preference on every particular thing in our life. He's got an opinion about everything. So now we're supposed to seek God's will in everything. And, and so there's fear. Like, what, what if I get this wrong? Maybe I didn't commit this. Maybe this went bad because I didn't surrender it enough to God. Uh, what would a marriage look like? What would a marriage look like if one of the spouses lived in that kind of fear? What's the will of my spouse? Uh, for what, what kind of socks I'm supposed to wear? What if I get it wrong? What if I don't make the right dinner? What, what if I don't come home? What if I take, choose the wrong movie to go out to? What, what, if I, what, if I, what kind of a marriage is that? Well, you're living under the fear of, of knowing the will of the, the other partner. I, I, I've known a few marriages that were like this. One guy, several years ago, just became, for whatever reasons, uh, a control freak the minute they got married. It wasn't like that beforehand, but got married, and all of a sudden, he had an opinion about everything that his wife did and enforced it. Uh, it picked out her clothing every day, and she turns into the household pet and, and you know, wants to know exactly where she's been. On the way home from work, and, and God has to give an account, and crawls her in the middle of the day, paranoid that she's maybe not where she said she was, and control. And guess what? That killed the marriage. Because people are people and not pets. It'd be a sick marriage if the person is living as she was for a time under this fear of, oh, what will, what will please him? I don't want to make him angry. No, no, no. See, the Spirit of God has not given to us a spirit of slavery. He leads us, wants to lead us. But as a gentle father leading a child, crying, Abba, Father, not with a spirit of fear and a spirit of bondage and slavery. Paul tells us, or John tells us in the New Testament, that perfect love casts out all fear. Perfect love casts out all fear, which means fear has no appropriate place. Not this cowering kind of fear. It has no place in a healthy marriage, no place in a healthy friendship, no place in healthy kingdom uh, child-rearing. Well, there's a place for knowing the consequences of something, but it shouldn't be this cowering kind of a fear, and it's got no place in the kingdom. Paul tells us that it's the love of Christ that compels him, that motivates him, that, that, that drives him on. Everything we do in the kingdom, if it's healthy in kingdom, it ought to be done out of a motivation of love, not fear. And so, yes, we want to know the will of God. We want to know the will of God. But it ought to be driven... Not by a court of law, sort of, what are the terms of my probation? No, it ought to be driven by this passionate love for seeing the beauty of who God is and what he's done for us. And we want to know the will of God because we want to know God. We want to commune with God. We want to dwell with him. So the best thing we can do if to, to know the will of God, to begin to hear the voice of God on the particular things that he might will us to do, best thing you can do is to... Make that question secondary and make it a primary objective of your life to commune with God. To commune with God. To spend time doing what married couples do, where you hang out together and you live life together. I, I, there's a lot of ways of going about this, but I, I recommend two ways that, that I find have worked very well for me. Uh, and there's a lot more that could be said about this. But one thing is, have a time where you set aside to have a date with Jesus on a regular basis. Maybe once a day or maybe it's once a week. Whatever works for you. But a time that you set aside. And I encourage people to put on some nice music in the background. And this is just a you and Jesus moment. 
where you just enjoy him enjoying you. It's not the time to, to evaluate and, and, and to try to strive or make pledges or intercede. A time where you just enjoy doing what he saved you to do, and that's to be with him and he with you. And I, I, I encourage you to put on some nice music and open up your imagination to the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, you know, his job is to point us to Jesus and make him real and, 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 and then try to see and to hear and to sense the realities that are talked about in the New Testament about who you are. Hear Jesus say those words to you and just delight in the Lord. Just delight in the Lord. Commune with him. As you get to know him and experience him, well, knowledge of the, his particular will comes out of that. But the center is the communion. Uh, if you want more uh, information on that, I wrote a book on it uh, called Seeing is Believing, about how to have these just enjoyable dates with Jesus in, in, in imaginative ways that are powerful and transforming. Another way of going about learning how to commune with God is, is to just break down all categorical, categorical distinctions between the religious and the, and the secular, or holy and, and unholy, and to just decide that since the earth belongs to God, it's all holy, and invite his presence into every area of your life, every moment of your life. Whatever you do, wherever you go, he's always with you. His presence is always there. He's already communing with you. It's to your advantage to know that and to remember that. This is called practicing the presence of God. This is being, trying to cultivate an awareness of God's presence throughout the day. That He's always communing with you. So you never do anything alone. You do it with him and union with him. And I don't want to sound self-promoting, but this is another thing I wrote a book on because I think it's, imp- it's very important. So I'm practicing the presence of God, and that's called Present Perfect. And uh, if you want to find out more about that, you can get that book as well out in the, in the gathering area. Make it your goal to commune with him. Amen. Uh, I've got time for one or two questions. What do we got? What do we got? Hi, Greg. Nice shirt. Oh, my shirt. Yeah. Are you insinuating something about God's will? Yeah, my... my. The, uh, this is grandfather, in case you couldn't quite read it. Grandfather, uh, my kids gave it to me for Father's Day last week. It was a special time. I'm a grandpa, and it's kind of, yeah. Hey, yeah, we can offer you, can't refuse. Uh, yeah, it's, it's insinuating absolutely nothing profound about the will of God, so let's move on. I'm not good at praying. What are other ways in which we can communicate with God? Can you discern God's will through signs or casting lots? Okay. Uh, there's no such thing as being good or not good at praying. Uh, there really isn't. Um, praying is simply talking to God. So talk to God. There's no extra rules about it, no special lingo to it. You don't have to use these and withers and thithers and wherefores. No, you just talk. In fact, you know, you can just, even if you're not good at talking, you can think. I mean, it's just, it's just communicating with him like that and then trying to listen. And we'll talk more about discerning that will. Remember, the primary goal is to just commune with him and, and to learn how to surrender your heart to him and to live with him moment by moment. And that will itself cultivate a lover's ear so you can begin to discern, discern the will of God. But you're not bad at praying. If you can talk to God uh, and try to listen, then that is, uh, that, that that's as good as it gets. Now about the casting lots and stuff. Okay, this is an interesting question. Ah, okay, three minutes. How, how far do I want to go on this? Because the thing is this. You'll find that God, at times, even in the Bible, last week I talked about God's ideal will and accommodating will. He accommodated some of those pagan ways of discerning his will. This is just where he, this is what he had to work with, and he goes with it. So you find that they read the Urim and Thummim back in the Old Testament, which is kind of a weird stone where they try to discern God's will, and they sometimes would cast lots and draw straws and uh, all sorts of things like that. Even the apostles did that when they're trying to uh, d- d- replace Judas. And there's no sense of there that the God was at all you know, telling them to do this. This is what, just what they did. And I, I, that's how I read the Old Testament stuff. Or Gideon's fleece, you know, he throws out a fleece and... You know, and he tests the Lord three times to try to discern the will of God. Even though the angel of the Lord had just told him what God's will was, he's not sure. So he throws out the fleece. And here's the deal, God, leave it to be dry when the rest of the ground is wet, blah, blah, blah. But there's no sense that that's... Never does the Bible hold that up as a way that we're supposed to discern the will of God. It's a real pagan, childish way of discerning the will of God. And God will stoop to that level. You know, since your heart's too hard to listen to me, okay, fine, I'll play by your rules. He's always a God, an incarnational God who steps into our limited realities and our our imperfect worlds. But his goal is to have, to cultivate a people who seek him, who are leaning in on his his chest. So he whispers, he whispers. So we have to press in and and, and cultivate an, an, an ability to hear him. I really wouldn't rely on signs or any of that kind of magical stuff today. Uh, it is, it, it's, it's, uh, 
while God accommodates it at times throughout history, that's not the way he wants to talk to us now. Now, he sometimes will. Uh, means where we're at. But uh, that doesn't mean that that should be our program and our approach to trying to understand as well. Got time for one more, I think. One more. From Dave. How does the framework of covenant relationships shed light on God being a judge at the end of this age? Yeah, I should have quit while I was ahead. I got one minute. I I would would put it like this. It fits very well, all right? How's that? No, see, the, 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 that's the thing. God at the end of the age is... I can't go into all the biblical texts to defend this, but uh, as I put it all together biblically, I, what I see God doing at the end of the age is he, that's where he says, here, here I am, deal with it. Here I am, deal with it. And right, his true self is revealed. It, it's, uh, that's why it's called apocalypse. It's, it's the unveiling. It'll be the unveiling of God as he is. Um, and that unveiling it will will be the god who is perfect love that love is a fire a consuming fire and a purifying fire and when god says here i am deal with it because this is this is ultimate reality and now everything that's consistent with that that uh, character is refined by the fire of god's love and everything that's inconsistent is burned up with the fire of god's love and those who are compatible with god through the grace of God, the work of Jesus Christ, those who are compatible with him, then have our characters fit for the kingdom of God and, um, and, and see it as redemptive grace. And those who, re, to the end, refuse, they experience it as the wrath of God. If God is love, if that's his innermost nature, then we should never pit God's wrath against his love. Rather, it's his wrath as God's love, and his justice as God's love, and his mercy as God's love. It's all different variations on God's love. The question is, is what kind of being are you, and how will you receive that love? If you're saying no to the love, well, then you, you experience that love as wrath. But it's not like a competing attribute in God. i got to quit. The question is, how do you distinguish between the gift of prophecy and hearing the will of God? Okay, one of the ways that we can hear from God is through the gift of prophecy. Uh, and there's some discussion about what exactly prophecy means. Uh, but most agree that it means it, it's primarily a, a God-anointed speech that, you, that a person gives... Um, that God is involved in, that God is speaking through that person. And sometimes it happens, and the person doesn't even know it. Uh, I, I, I think that that's, it's a crucial gift if you're going to be a, a preacher because you want God to be speaking through you. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you, you're always, I'm going to be living in the question, Lord, do you want me to say this, or Lord, do you want me to say that? No, you just say what's on your heart, and sometimes God lands on it. Like Peter, I never noticed this until I was reading Dallas Willard's book this, this week, um, and, and Peter um, uh, you know, Jesus says, who do people say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says, oh, well, blessed are you, because that didn't come from you, Peter. You're way too dull to get that one. That came from the Father in heaven. And then ten verses later, or even seven verses later, he calls him Satan. So things can change pretty quickly. But, okay, so there's a, this prophetic word. So that usually is for a group, and there's got to be appropriate context for it. Paul says you've got to assess things. It's one of the reasons why you know, we, we, we request that people, in fact, we don't request, this is a rule, that people submit their, if they have a word that they think is for everybody, they submit it to the leadership, and there's got to be a discernment. Whereas in small groups, that gift can work very well. And remember, in the early church, everything they wrote was written with an assumption that this will be applied in small groups. But God can speak through a person, and, and it's, it's a word either for one or for several, and it's a way of knowing the will of God. Discerning the will of God. Um, but that's, there's a lot of other ways of, of hearing God's will, as we'll be talking about. Uh, if I get the gift of prophecy, that, that's not, it's not about his will for my life. It's about what I'm supposed to say towards someone else's life. Here, here's a gift. It's a discernment of God's will. So we'll be, we'll be getting that in some, some uh, weeks to come. Thanks for asking that. Excellent. Other questions? Oh, good. Okay, good. If God wants to speak to us, why doesn't he speak to us verbally? Yeah, well, why, you know, why make it so difficult? See, and it's a very good question, and in the end, you know, we all say we don't know. Uh, always, you got to, you know, epistemological humility, uh, where you got to know what you don't know. But I tell you what I think. I mean, you, in the Bible, sometimes have people being talked to verbally, uh, where it seems like it's a, an actual physical thing. But remember that in the Bible, you know, we sometimes get this impression that, that like God was always doing these miracles and always speaking verbally and all that. But the Bible is a collection of like the best and the greatest and also the worst. 
of, of God's interactions with people. So you, you, you can easily miss the point that there's hundreds of years that passed on before that happened again. Because in the Bible, maybe it's you know, only three chapters apart. Anyways, the, it has to do, I believe, with the, 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 the kind of relationship that he wants. See, it, when God does sort of real external things that everyone can see, it doesn't take any kind of spiritual conditioning to see that. Although, even there, people can walk away when God spoke from the sky about Jesus, this is my beloved son. The Pharisees, oh, it must have thundered out. So you can, there's always a plausible exit strategy if you don't want to hear the word of God. But, but, and God sometimes will do this just because he loves us and he meets us where we're at. He'll, he'll sometimes come down to that level. And there'll be the, the, the cloud in the sky or the, you know, the, or, you know, the phenomenal stuff, um, the parting of the Red Sea and whatnot, a voice from heaven. But God ordinarily has spoken through that still, small voice. And I think that's what I'm going to speak on next week uh, with a, uh, Elijah. Uh, he, you know, there's a thunder and there's an earthquake. But the, the will of God was found in that still, small voice. And that's because God wants a people who are panting after him, who are leaning in on him. It grows our character, I believe, when we have to strain to listen. That's why God, Jesus says, seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened. I, Keep pushing in. Now, it turns out the reason why we can even push in is because he's already pushing in on us. He's seeking us before we ever seek him. But he doesn't want to make it just like you know, a, a secular thing where, hey, everybody, because, well, then we just stay in our carnality. Anybody can hear the voice coming from the sky. But it takes a heart that's been growing. It's like, I, I, don't, I don't want the world to know my wife the way I know her. I want to be able to read her in ways that others can't. That's the, that's the, that, that gives this depth in communion. And so that, that accrues over time. It's a very, very good question. Got time for one more. Uh, so I, I think you were saying, is it possible for a, God to put a word on your heart, but you don't get it, but then somebody, he uses somebody else to speak it to you? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Uh, so, so then she's saying, is this, is this possible where uh, God puts something on your heart to speak to somebody about the will of God? And, um, but you didn't hear it verbally or anything like that. You just have a sense. Uh, yes. In fact, that is, I think, the way it usually operates. I mean, in terms of uh, another person communicating to another person, God off, often uses, and we'll talk about this in, in subsequent sermons too, but God often uses other people to speak his will to you. Now, we have to put some safeguards around that because, you know, I've had folks come up to me and say, thus says the Lord, and I know that that wasn't the Lord talking. Uh, you know, and, and, and so I, usually these things operate best in community where you know the person, you know, you know their motivation, and, and all of that, though sometimes God can give you a word to share with somebody else, and it's just one of those weird things, so you've got to be very careful about how you do it. Uh, one of the, the verses that I have really been coming to me as I've been going through the series is Proverbs 20, 27, and, and I, I'll end with this, where the Lord, it, it says that this, the spirit of a person is the lamp of the Lord. I never noticed that before. Spirit, of, and, and what I want to get at is that that. It's like God uses our innermost being, our spirit, to be itself the way that he communicates to us. And that goes back to your question, that the main way that God reveals things at a level that's deeper than, it's that voice that's louder than the human voice when you're in a communing relationship. And, 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 and so it's this profound, it's your thoughts, and yet it's your thoughts that are anointed by him. And you can develop a capacity to recognize, okay, that's, but it's not out here. It's way deep in here. That's why the, the, the first and foremost goal, if we want to be a people who do his will, well, then the most foundational part of his will is that we are one with him and that we cultivate, take time out to be one with him. Because it's only, you know, Paul says in, in, in 1 Corinthians uh, 3, deep calls out to deep. And, and no one can discern the, the, the things of God except the Spirit of God dwelling in him. And so he, he's calling us at a deep level to get deeper. And as we spend time doing that and cultivating awareness throughout the day, well, that's where we develop that capacity to kind of let God turn the light on. We begin to know things that we didn't otherwise know. But there's no communication at that level unless there's communion at that level. communion occasion. If you mess up while following God's will in your life, is there, is there a way to ever get back on track? Excellent. Um, see, this is the kind of fear thing I, I, I'm talking about. I've confronted that question so many times. And we have this idea that, that uh, uh, there's a lot of theology around this, but the idea here is that God's got a blueprint for your life. God's perfect will for your life. And 
Uh, I'm not even sure that that's a, a helpful phrase. And so you have to kind of like follow this blueprint. It's perfect will. And then, then he'll lead you this way. And then he'll lead you this way. And uh, invariably, if you're a normal human being, at some point you're going to realize that this couldn't possibly have been God's will. You screwed up. Something happened. Well, then if you're wor- working with this blueprint idea that comes right out of this legal paradigm, the judge says, here's the will. Well, then how do you ever get back? Um, and I've seen disastrous things happen because people try to get back. I may have mentioned this last week or the week before, but there's a couple that I knew where they were married, and then they both decided that, they didn't, that this wasn't God's perfect will for their life because they couldn't stand each other after six months. And, and then they both got this idea. It was crazy. It was, I think, I think demonic, but uh, the woman initially got this idea that God's perfect will was that guy that she dated five years earlier in high school. That's who she was supposed to marry, but then they fell into sin and fornication, and that they, they screwed up God's perfect will. So they weren't hearing God, so then they, they broke up, and now she married this guy, but this is not God's perfect will. So she divorces him and goes back to that guy. Ah, There's a kid involved, too. And, and then this guy was, had already been in a marriage, but he broke up, and now they got married, and they, they called that God's will. No. No, 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 no. But see, that's... Look, at the thing is this. I, if you look at the biblical paradigm, God has a will for your life. Okay, and it's right here and right now. Now, I'll make decisions, and I'll try to follow that. I probably will screw it up a little bit. So God then incorporates new things in, in, into the will. Uh, there's, there's a plan A. Well, here's a plan B. And the incredible thing about God, because he's infinitely intelligent, is his plan Bs are as good as his plan A. They're just different. Amen. Okay, you know, maybe before you, you, you were going to be a missionary to Taiwan, uh, some things happened here and got screwed up. Okay, that door's closed, but you know what? Because of this new circumstance, even as painful as it is, it was sin. Maybe it shouldn't have happened. Now he can be a missionary in Minnesota. Uh, and maybe have a, a ministry uh, to women who went through what you went through. I don't know. You see, he, it's, a, it's a new will. And then if that gets screwed up, well, he's got this plan C. And then he's got a plan D and a plan. And the beautiful thing is that even if you get to plan Z, or even if you go through the alphabet 18 times, it's still just as good as the first one. It's a new perfect will. And now a new perfect will. He's always adopting. He's always incorporating. He's a genius at bringing good out of evil. So, see, that's that fear. I don't worry. This shouldn't be fear-driven. Paul says it's the love of God. The love of Christ compels us. In a healthy relationship, it's love that compels us. It's not, oh, what if I don't get the will of God? Because then the, the, the Zeus thunderbolt-throwing judge is going to zap me. It's, that's not a good marriage. No, it should be... It should be, I, I, I shouldn't be seeking out of fear, but out of love. Oh, I get to know the will of God. He, I get to be used by God. Uh, I want to be used by God. Uh, it's an opportunity for me to be used in the kingdom. And, and it's the love of God. We want to pursue his will because we're pursuing him. And his will is simply the deep part of him. You see how that goes? Communion, occasion. Uh, I'm going to close in prayer. Uh, the prayer teams will be up here, and I encourage you to, if you have any need whatsoever, to take the time to pray with these folks. That's what they're here for. They love to just uh, you know, intercede on behalf of, of, of people. And there's no reason to take your burden out with you. Uh, come up and, and, and join these folks. And Father, as we leave this place, I pray that we would be a people who are leaning in to hear your still, small voice. But most, most of all, Lord, I pray we'd, be a, pray we'd be a people who long to commune with you, to be one with you, to be surrendered to you, I pray we'd be motivated and by a passionate love to know you more. And then to discern your will because we love you. Use us and grow us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, God bless you guys. Go out and enjoy a wonderful holiday. Build the kingdom.